Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. A bad idea. President Trump's assessment of Turkish military action in Syria. All you need is a Brexit deal. In Liverpool, Boris Johnson and his Irish counterpart meeting for talks and dazzling Dior. LVMH's Q3 earnings giving luxury stocks a lift. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. To first move. Great to be back in action on what well and truly feels like game day, at least the latest game day in the US-China trade talks, which have just begun over in D.C. It's the 13th round of talks, in fact. Good job it's Thursday and not Friday today, or oh, that would be Friday the 13th. You see what I did there. But anyway, yeah, let's move on. Still feels like there's a risk of a fright here for investors if these talks go badly. Stock futures right now a little bit softer, but oh, we've been on a bit of a roller coaster pre-market with some pretty wild swings. At one point, stocks down 1% pre-market following Chinese media reports that talks could get cut short. The White House, meanwhile, playing that down, saying that they've had no indication that the Chinese plan to exit early here. I know exactly what what you're thinking. You're thinking that I sound like a parrot and this sounds exactly like the past 12 times of talks. And please wake me up when it's all over. Yes, you would be well uh, within your rights to say that to ignore the backdrop and this is key here too. The talks come as the US expanded its blacklist of Chinese tech firm if you remember earlier on this week and of course the ongoing MBA controversy that put Hong Kong protests front and centre too. That said, the optimists were out in force yesterday. Stocks rising around 1% on hopes of some kind of mini deal coming through here including a pact on the Chinese currency, perhaps even a carve out for tech giants. Huawei. We've heard it all before. I've argued for a long time now there's two deals here. There's a trade deal and there's a tech deal to be done here too. And the latter is going to be far more difficult and still feels like a huge stretch. Investors, though, more broadly optimistic. The S&P 500 still sitting some 3.5% away from record highs. The risk of disappointment here, and I'll continue to argue this too, is high five days out now from a potential rise in tariffs. Let's get to the drivers because Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, great to have you with us just as those talks kick off in D.C., of course. And back to my point there, there's two deals here, a trade deal and a technology deal. And I just don't think we're any further forward on the thorny one here, which is the technology deal. be a resolution of either of these two deals at this meeting if you listen to the whispering uh, classes in Washington, D.C. and in Beijing right now. I mean, the best I think you can hope for is that it doesn't get worse and that they keep talking. And that's how kind of both parties have been uh, have been playing it this week, have been kind of guiding expectations. Um, earlier this week, it seemed like the Chinese were guiding expectations to a very narrow deal, and that was greeted as negative by Wall Street. And then by yesterday, 
expectations of achieving a narrow deal was greeted as positive because it would be something at least. So uh, how Wall Street reacts is, still remains to be seen. The leverage that the White House has here, though, is pretty significant. You're right to point out next week there's a deadline, October 15th, when you've got a whole bunch of products that the tariff rate's going to go up to 30 percent. And there's another bit of leverage that the White House has moving forward into December when there's yet another 15 percent tariffs on $160 billion worth of consumer-facing goods that go into place here. So I think a win would be really uh, not a loss <laughs> is what they're looking for here. Not to put new tariffs in is what the Chinese would like. Big ag purchases perhaps would, would, would help a little bit on the U.S. side. But I don't think anybody thinks, Julia, you're going to get a resolution of these two big thorny trade issues, tech and the broader trade relationship uh, in this next 24 hours. Yeah, basically what you're saying is no further escalation looks like a win here. Yes. That's the situation that we've got to. And in the meantime, for businesses, for the economy, the uncertainty, the concerns remain here. And again, if you look at the Fed minutes from yesterday, the Federal Reserve putting trade front and center. This is the big bargaining chip, the risk factor here for the U.S. economy. And the White House needs to recognize that. It's so true. And, you know, you even look at some of these uh, numbers coming out. I mean, we're a year and a half into a trade war that has had a cost of $34 billion on importers. That's a, a big a trade group that is against these tariffs, by the way. Put these numbers together. $6.5 billion in tariffs Americans paid uh, in the trade war in August uh, of this year. So even if you don't have an escalation, even if it just stops at it is, as it is right now, it is still a drag. It is still uncertainty going forward. Now, I've been talking to a lot of people in trade land who have been watching this, and they've been saying that, um, you know, the Chinese are looking past the 2020 election. They see a wounded president, and they would rather take a deal in 2021 with whoever is the president than a bad deal in 2019. Also, internally, you know, changing Chinese law is still a sticking point. That is something that the White House wanted, remember, way back in, in March when, when, when the trade talks really fell apart. They thought they had a deal in principle. The Chinese backed away. Uh, the Chinese aren't going to walk any closer to that line today than they were then. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting strategy as long as they get President Joe Biden in the future. If they get President Elizabeth Warren, then I would refer them to her recent blog post on China and the way she takes the, an approach to China. And it could be a even more lively, perhaps. Christine Romans, thank you so much buckle for that. <laughs> yeah, buckle up. We're strapped in. All right, let's move on to our next driver now. And the Turkish military says its operation in Syria is continuing, quote, successfully. This is an advance in the northeast. Kurdish SDF forces report at least 11 people dead, including civilians, as the operation enters its second day. A short while ago, Turkey's president rejected international criticism of the incursion, saying over 100, quote, terrorists have been killed. Nick Payton Walsh joins us now from the border. Nick, I guess it depends on uh, your view on uh, who the terrorists are here ultimately, but just bring us up to speed with uh, the action and the activity you've seen over the last few hours. Join me here 
with a skyline that has transformed in the last hours. Uh, we've been seeing repeated uh, strikes, it seems, artillery rounds impacting over there, and that is obviously the Syrian side of the border, Tel Abyad, uh, which it seems is increasingly less in the hands of the Syrian Kurds that took control of it when they kicked ISIS out of it. We've seen Turkish military vehicles come from inside uh, Syria towards the border here, seemingly cross over. That puts evidence to the Turkish military statement last night that they had begun their ground operation. But clearly today, the move to take Tal Abyad behind me is continuing. Now, we're hearing from our colleagues on the other side of the border that some of these plumes of smoke you might be seeing are from tyre fires set by the Syrian Kurds in their positions to try and obscure the view uh, of advancing Turkish forces. I have to say, though, I mean, this is the second largest army in NATO, so given the Syrian Kurds were often complaining about how old and inadequate their weapons were to fight ISIS when we were with them, they will have a tough chance pushing back any advancing Turkish force. But for Turkey, the news is also bad today. We've heard today ourselves from officials in the town that the blasts we heard were in fact mortars landing near the government centre and the riot police headquarters. That has caused six or seven people to be injured, we heard from government officials. The first that we are aware of of retaliatory strikes, presumably from the Syrian Kurds, to land inside of Turkey. President Erdogan, though, clear uh, in his determination, it seems, to continue what he considers to be an operation to rid their southern border of what he refers to as terrorists, the Syrian Kurds, but it's fair to say the Syrian Kurds are the ones fighting terrorists with American backing for the last four or five years. This is the complexity that Turkey has entered into here, but Erdogan's statement today very clear that if the EU doesn't, quote, pull itself together and stop referring to this as an invasion, in his mind, they're simply returning these parts of northeastern Syria to the Syrian Sunni Arabs that are in the midst of this Turkish military invasion. If Europe doesn't stop calling it an invasion, then it's entirely possible they will send the 3.6 million Syrian refugees that are in Turkey towards Europe. Remember, part of Turkey's goal here is to send those millions of Syrian refugees displaced by the Syrian civil war back into Syria itself, and Turkey hopes to create a corridor along the border here in which that can peacefully and safely be done. The issue is how wide and extensive will this operation be? I heard from a US official familiar uh, with this area well uh, that their assessment is that initially, certainly, the Turkish military will aim to take Tal Abyad here all the way down to Ras a two-hour drive uh, along the border here, potentially as much as five miles deep initially, and then possibly might go for the whole stretch of the border that is currently held by uh, Syrian Kurds. That is a massive operation if undertaken, one that could take weeks, if not months, involving clearing populated areas, will cause many of displaced. Uh, and, of course, we're also reminded today that there is a, an issue uh, with the ISIS detainees. Uh, the White House has said that they will be given to Turkey to happened in Turkish custody. I think you're hearing outgoing blasts there uh, that may soon land in the distance over behind me. But two of the most prominent of those ISIS detainees, the so-called Beatles, Koti and El Shafi, British citizens responsible or accused of mistreating Western hostages held by ISIS, they've swiftly been transferred to US military custody and are thought to be in Iraq on their way potentially to trial in the US. A sign maybe that the White House doesn't really value the Turkish promise to hold them in custody particularly well. But still, this operation behind me advancing fast. Back to you. So 
many important questions there being asked, Nick, and including the, the depth of this offensive, which clearly at this stage we don't know. Nick Payton Walsh there for us. Stay safe, Nick. All right, let's move on to our next driver. The NBA game in Shanghai is on, even if you can't watch it on television there still. The stadium two-thirds full. And there also has been some off-court drama with the NBA commissioner cancelling his pre-match press conference amid the broader Hong Kong tweet storm, of course. David Culver is in Shanghai at that match, has been covering the story for us, David. Looks like strong support, even to my point, though, if uh, viewers in China don't get to watch this match. What are people there saying? That is a great point. Yeah, that's a great point, Julia. Yeah, the perspective of, of the only Chinese citizens really officially allowed to be able to see this happening live are the ones who are inside the stadium. We just stepped out from courtside. We're in, we're in the press center, but still within the stadium. So they're the ones who are able to watch it as it's going on. And behind me, looks like it's all set up, right, for a press conference, beautifully lit. They've got the podium ready. But we were told just before the game that Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, will not be taken to that podium. And after the game, the players aren't going to be speaking in any post-game press conferences like we usually do hear from them. So that suggests to us, Julia, that this is still incredibly sensitive, that things are still being worked out to the point where they don't want something to be said that could be misconstrued and then further deteriorate what is already a very strained relationship between the NBA and China. Speaking to some of the fans inside the stadium, I wanted to get a feel for what actually brought them out to be there as Chinese citizens who are hearing their government very upset and angry, and as they put it, their feelings hurt based on what the NBA and the Houston Rockets did. Uh, they said they still love basketball. They still wanted to show their support. They're wearing their jerseys as they're in there. As the, as the players t took to the court and tip off, they were screaming. They were they were electric. I mean, it, it's like as though you were in Madison Square Garden or Capital One Arena or wherever it, it, normal games happen. That's what you feel inside that arena and by the court. They do point out, though, that in their minds, their country comes first. Now, they're saying that, uh, and, and they all seem to be carrying little Chinese flags. It's not clear if those were handed out. My suspect, I do suspect that that is the case. I'm, I'm working to actually figure that out because everyone seemed to have them and they say uh, that's to show that patriotism is first for them, Julia. Yeah, it's interesting whether or not that will continue or whether consumers and Chinese consumers' love of basketball will uh, perhaps push this forward in the NBA's favor. We shall see. David, fantastic to have you with us. David Culvert there. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. In Washington, congressional leaders are plotting their next move after the White House vowed it would not cooperate with their impeachment inquiry. House Democrats are preparing a wave of subpoenas two days after the administration blocked testimony from the U.S. ambassador to the European Union. Meanwhile, former vice president and current presidential candidate Joe Biden has called for President Trump's impeachment for the first time. Suzanne Malveaux joins us now. A lot of people here saying that on that point, at least, better late than never for Joe Biden. And if you compare and contrast with the presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren, she was very much on the front foot here. What difference do we think this makes for, for Joe Biden and for the president here? 
Well, we know that Joe Biden is really trying to appear that he is a fighter, that he is ready to take this on. This has been a very aggressive campaign against him. And he realizes, looking at the poll numbers, they have dipped and perhaps a cost for the last couple of weeks or so that this drumbeat has continued to push against him to allege corruption by him and his son. All of these uh, investigations, these allegations uh, simply debunked. And so he realizes that he has been told by uh, various supporters that he has has to come out a lot stronger. And yes, you're absolutely right, Julia. He is behind many of the uh, presidential candidates who have already called for this. And of course, the backdrop to all of this is the president's own behavior. That letter that the White House sent to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi saying we are not going to cooperate at all with this impeachment investigation, uh, that uh, also demanding that there be a full vote for the full House when uh, members of Congress come back from recess for an impeachment inquiry. That is a battle that is ensuing and taking place. And then you have the president uh, making at least three phone calls uh, to the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell each day trying to encourage him, trying to circle the wagons and make sure that Republicans are behind him when it comes to this impeachment inquiry, saying that they have to be unified, go up against his detractors. And there are very few detractors when it comes to Republicans. But you have senators like Mitt Romney who are openly critical. One of the things too, Julia, that the strategy of the GOP seems to be is I, I looked at my Twitter this morning and I uh, saw one of the leaders, um, McCarthy, who actually tweeted out this morning saying that the Democrats are obsessed with this impeachment inquiry, that they are not getting their jobs done. And so that is part of the uh, really the strategy, if you will, to hit back and say, look, the Democrats aren't even doing their jobs. Uh, this is something that is leading down a rabbit hole and we're just not going to participate. Yeah, but for our viewers, I think this is such a critical point to make. He can be impeached in the House, but if the Republican-controlled Senate will not vote to impeach the president, then he remains. And the only way the Democrats get him out is seeing him elected out in, in 2020. It's such an important point. Suzanne, fantastic to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Suzanne Malvo there over in D.C. All right, let's move on. A 27-year-old male has been arrested in an eastern German town of Hal, suspected in a deadly shooting rampage. A woman was killed near a synagogue and a man was fatally shot outside a kebab shop. The gunman appears to have live streamed the attack online and can be heard making anti-Semitic comments on the video. The attack occurred on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year for the Jewish community. Rugby World Cup matches will not take place on Saturday as a result of safety concerns. This because of a super typhoon set to make landfall in Japan. New Zealand's match against Italy and the contest between England and France have been cancelled. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But coming up, from dot-com bubbles to financial troubles, I speak to the man who's been through it all. The former Nasdaq CEO makes his first move. That's coming up on the show. Stay with CNN. We're back in two. First move live from the New York Stock Exchange. We're counting down to the market open this Thursday. A bit of cautiousness, I think, feeding into what we're seeing in terms of the price action here, awaiting news and headlines from those talks over in D.C. Of course, the 13th round of trade talks kicking off today. It's making a pretty tough trading environment, I think, at least for now. And speaking of tough trading environments, take a look at the U.K. economic growth numbers. The U.K. economy contracting 0.1% 
important in August amid Brexit and broader trade uncertainty. That's the first negative GDP reading since April. Manufacturing plunging some 0.7% in August. That was significantly worse than expected. Just having a look at how uh, the FTSE over in the UK is performing uh, higher by one-tenth of a percent. The pound also a touch stronger against the dollar. Where are we? Well, I can tell you, 21 days and counting. No deal on Brexit in sight. The Brexit deadline looming large, of course, that Halloween 31st of October is the date. Today, Boris Johnson meeting his Irish counterpart, the Taoiseach, to try and break the impasse. Nick Robertson joins us now. Nick, is there any hope that they can achieve some kind of breakthrough in these talks today? You know, I think the expectation of a breakthrough has really been played down by both sides. I mean, look at the scenario, for example. It's not happening in London. It's not happening in Dublin, uh, where you would naturally expect these meetings to normally take place. We only found out about the locationist meeting a few hours before it took place. Both of these prime ministers, uh, Boris Johnson and the Irish T-shirt Leo Varadkar, both like the cameras. Yet here they are today, holed up in a in a hotel in Merseyside, uh, spending two hours of those last 21 days here trying to see if there is any way that they can bridge the current gap. And that, that impasse, the biggest part of that impasse really is that Boris Johnson's latest offer essentially says that Northern Ireland will come out of the EU customs union along with the rest of uh, Great Britain. The European Union, the Irish of course included with them, are saying that's a no-go. And that's the major stumbling block at the moment. Everything is set up at the EU right now for a leaders' summit in a week's time, and they're supposed to ratify the agreement. But look, where we stand right now, it doesn't seem that there's going to be an agreement by then. So we're talking about extensions. We're talking about more political fighting here in the UK. Legal fighting is Boris Johnson going to um, follow the law here and put in for that three-month extension. All these questions in the air. We haven't yet heard from either of them here. Um, what we may hear today, I don't know. We may not hear much, Julia. Hmm. Right down to the wire, it seems, once again. Nick, fantastic to have you with us. Nick Robertson on that story there. All right, let's move on because uh, the luxury sector is getting a lift today. As I mentioned earlier, LVMH's uh, Q3 earnings beating expectations. Anna Stewart has been pouring over the numbers. Sales here defying gravity, Anna. Talk us through it. Yeah, they really took me by surprise, actually, Julie, because if you look at the backdrop of a global trade war, of a key market like Hong Kong rocked by protests, and many stores actually had to close their doors temporarily in recent weeks. And yet, and yet, look at this. Sales, excluding currency movements, up 11% in the third quarter. Sales were strong not just in China, a key market, but broadly Asia and Europe and the US too. So with my surprise, I did speak to an analyst, they said it just shows how super, super brands like the ones under LVMH's umbrella are incredibly resilient. And although you have China's economy slowing, although you are seeing consumer demand dip, we saw some soft numbers in the summer, we're looking at the very high-end luxury consumer here, and they are resilient. And actually, China is currently creating two billionaires a week. That is the sequence sparkly version, Julia. I would say that if China catches a big enough cold, LVMH will struggle. Yeah, it's going to be uh, fascinating to watch, I think. Uh, something else, actually, that struck me in the last few weeks, and I've actually written an article about it, comments from Bernard Arnault, the chairman of LVMH, in light of Greta Thunberg's comments. He said mm. that her comments over the environment were demoralizing. Last time I checked, all the growth in luxury was coming from the under-40s. I just wonder if there's going to be any sort of blowback on those kind of comments. They were. 
were controversial comments. He said that he prefers positive solutions uh, rather than catastrophizing. LVMH are interesting here. They do have their own sustainability goals and they are on course to meet them. They're going to cover 30% of energy needs next year uh, from renewable sources and so on and so on. But they have been a bit different. They're very competitive when it comes to sustainability. They are not joining uh, a pact led by caring arrival on these goals. They don't want to sign up to any kind of pact. Speaking to analysts, I did ask, will this see a drop-off of sales, particularly for the younger consumer? And he says currently, no. If and when it happens, and we're looking much longer term, they may be keener to strike more of an environmentally friendly pact. They may, you know, join forces with other brands, but currently they don't. Also, their supply chain is so complex, they don't want to sign up to anyone else's pact unless they can actually meet it. Uh, Anti-fur protests, that was 20, 30 years ago. It took a long time for any brands to actually make any changes there. This could be a much longer term shift that we see. Julia? Yes, putting the planet before profits. It's going to be an ongoing conversation. Anna Stewart, thank you so much for that. All right, we're going to down to the market open and that follows this. Stay with us. We're back in two. Welcome back to First Move and the opening bell here the New York Stock Exchange. We've got a bit of pressure on stocks as anticipated in early trading after a pretty volatile session pre-markets. Investors right now have little clarity over where the US-China trade talk stands. Do we get some kind of mini deal? Are we looking at an ongoing trade truce? Who knows? I think the bottom line is a win will be no further escalation and we've got five days really to see whether or not we get that. The Fed, of course, yesterday in the minutes cited trade as their biggest concern when they lower rates at the September policy meeting. The question, of course, is how does that play into what we get in the October meeting? At least inflation for the Federal Reserve is not a worry here. New numbers showing consumer prices were unchanged in September, perhaps giving the Fed at least room on this front to cut rates further later this month. All right, let me walk you through our global movers here to Apple shares trading higher in the session. The company removing a controversial app that allows protesters to keep track of the police in Hong Kong. More details on that later on in the show and what the company, the app developers, saying about it. What about GM shares? Well, they're higher by some eight-tenths of 1%. The company announcing that car sales in China fell 17.5% in the third quarter. That's the fifth straight quarterly sales decline for GM in China. I think challenged the word there. Trade-related stocks like chipmaker Micron, Caterpillar, also seeing a bit of movement here to Caterpillar higher by some half a percent in the session today. All right, since the start of the trade war almost one and a half years ago, shares of both companies have gone virtually nowhere with both down around 2% over that time. All right, let's bring it back to one of our top stories now. President Trump's decision to pull U.S. troops out of northern Syria is having deadly consequences. The Turkish military says its troops have hit 181 targets so far in Syria. CNN reporters on the ground tell us they're seeing civilians, including children, fleeing the shelling on foot. Republicans here in the United States are among those slamming President Trump, accusing him of abandoning the Kurds. President Trump seemed to downplay the alliance with them, saying that they didn't help the U.S. during World War II. 
Now, the Kurds are fighting for their land, just so you understand. They're fighting for their land. And as somebody wrote in a very, very powerful article today, they didn't help us in the Second World War. They didn't help us with Normandy. That in a press conference yesterday. We're now joined by U.S. Colonel Cedric Layton joining us from Washington. He's also a CNN military analyst. Colonel, fantastic to have you with us. Your assessment to begin with what we've seen in the last 48 hours in Syria. Well, Julia, it's great to be with you. The, uh, the basic assessment is that Turkey is moving its plan forward to occupy about 18 miles of, of territory into northeastern Syria. Uh, so what they're doing is they're establishing a buffer zone, and this is something that we thought would happen anyways. Uh, they would want to do this. Uh, they've uh, indicated for basically over a year now that they wanted to uh, take territory from the Kurds uh, because they want to make sure that uh, Kurdish forces don't uh, exercise terroristic attacks against, don't mount terrorist attacks against uh, Turkish territory. So that's one part of it. The other part of it, though, is that the forces of the Syrian Democratic uh, Front, the, the basic forces that we've been allied with from the U.S. side uh, in the fight against ISIS, are really abandoning their positions against ISIS and uh, guarding the, uh, ISIS prisoners and also mounting op military operations against the remnants of ISIS, and they're turning toward fighting the Turks. And so this is weakening the fight against ISIS as much as, you know, we don't talk about that right now. That's still a significant issue. You know, some of the pushback on the criticism of, of President Trump's actions in the, in the last few days has been that, look, the caliphate itself for, for ISIS has been erased. And actually, the remaining counterterrorism efforts that could take place are not ones that can be done by having troops on the ground here. Is that a strong enough argument and a justification, or, or do you disagree here? I actually disagree because it, when it comes to counterterrorist operations, the best counterterrorist operations are mounted by troops that are actually on the ground in the area that uh, we're targeting. Uh, so in the case of the fight against ISIS, what you're looking at is the need to maintain a presence in northeastern Syria and in Iraq uh, to go after the remnants of that group. If you're not there, they'll fill that vacuum. And uh, the idea of us leaving that area before the job is done, which is exactly what is happening, is a very, very bad idea at this point. The president called what he's seen in, in Syria now and the, the Turkish response a, a bad idea. He said earlier this week that he would obliterate the Turkish economy if they went off limits. Do we have any sense of what off limits in this mind of this White House represents here? Well, I don't think it's a, uh, you know, really a hard and fast uh, set of limits that he's established even in his own mind. Uh, but what the president is basically saying is if uh, the Turks violate uh, certain norms of human rights, uh, then uh, we would uh, put a stop to it. But it's a lot harder to put a stop to something if you're not physically present. Uh, and in fact, it's almost impossible to do that. Uh, so the threat against the Turkish economy or against Turkish military forces, if you take it to its logical conclusion, uh, is really uh, not very viable. And uh, the Turks know that, and they're going to act with impunity. Uh, they're not going to really abide by the niceties of human rights conventions or anything like that when it comes to dealing with the Kurds. And that's going to be a, a really big tragedy for that group of people. You know, in the end, it has 
to be a diplomatic solution, whether it's uh, a Russian, Iran, a greater UN Security Council action or activity. There has to be diplomacy involved here in order to end the civil war. And it's been something that we've been talking about now for years and years and years. Is it further away, a diplomatic solution, as a result of what we've seen now over the last 72 hours in your mind? I think it is, at least when it comes to the United States being involved in that diplomatic solution. So the minute that you either alter your presence uh, to the downside or uh, you eliminate that military presence, the less leverage you have on the diplomatic bargaining table. And in this case, I think what we're going to see is Russia and Iran and uh, the government of Bashar al-Assad in Syria profiting from this withdrawal of American forces. Uh, the Turks and the Russians and probably the Assad regime are working together in order to eliminate the Kurdish uh, uh, elements in northeastern Syria. And that is not only bad from a moral standpoint, since these people are the ones that have really fought on our side to go after ISIS, but it's also very dangerous from a humanitarian standpoint. Uh, the refugees that Turkey has taken in uh, are certainly a volatile lot. Uh, the refugees that remain in Syria are even more volatile than those, and that's going to, I think, create a humanitarian crisis uh, that may dwarf the crisis that we saw a few years ago where there were so many refugees coming into Europe. And the social strain that we saw in Europe uh, may very well be repeated uh, in the next few years if we're not careful with this. Well, the president made a, a point yesterday of saying how heartbreaking it was to be with the families of soldiers who've lost their lives and their bodies are repatriated and, and he has to talk to those families. As a, as a military person, as someone who's faced this time and time again, is there any justification for the withdrawal of troops because the president promised and has said that the United States can't be the, the police force of the world, particularly when there are other countries in the region that need to step up perhaps and, and take action and with greater responsibility here? Is there any justification, do you, do you think? Well, there is justification from a political standpoint, uh, you know, in essence, the viewpoint that uh, we have to withdraw and, and to worry about our own problems here in the United States as opposed to the problems of the world. The problem with that view, though, is that if you withdraw from the world, uh, the world uh, will, will do things that you don't want it to do. And in this particular case, where you have the Kurds that were really very good allies of ours, uh, their sacrifices uh, far exceed those of the United States in terms of numbers of people killed uh, during the fight against ISIS, uh, that becomes a wrong move. You need to stay until the job is done. Uh, you know, if you want to use a World War II example, as the president did, uh, when he wrongly talked about the Kurds, uh, the correct uh, thing is that we really... Uh, provided influence and guidance to countries in Europe and in Asia after World War II, and that proved to be a very successful model. Uh, military presence doesn't mean that you're fighting all the time, but it means that you're influencing all the time, and that's very, very necessary in the world today. Yes, separation of the short term and the longer term. Colonel Cedric Layton, thank you so much, sir, for, for joining us on the show. You bet, Julia. It's a, it was a pleasure. Thank you. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We're coming up on First Move, the former boss of the NASDAQ with a warning about the next bubble to potentially burst. Stay with us. We're back in two.
I really believe in a handshake. Even this deal with DHL, one of the executives said to me, what we'd like to do is we'd like to plant a tree for every ticket sold, and our goal would be a million trees. When I phoned Brian up and said, they've come up with this idea, I'm in. The discussion was that short, okay, because that's Brian Adams. He's always been an environmentalist. We shook hands and moved ahead, and the contract just reflected that. I, I think it's a wonderful initiative. Sometimes it's very hard to explain and very easy to experience it. I cannot create dishes sitting in my chair. I need to interact with the ingredients. My name is Pepe Moncayo. I am a chef. I've been cooking all my life. For me, being from Barcelona, I was very drawn into using seafood in my menus, and I believe that's the similarity between Catalan, Spanish cuisine, and Japanese cuisine, which is about simplicity. Japan is an island. Traditionally, their cuisine is seafood. Sake was brewed as a perfect pair with seafood. To me, there are two key things, the low acidity and the high content of amino acids. And especially in seafood, there is a lot of amino acids. So it's a natural bearing for sake. The experience of sake with food compared to wine is in another level. I'm very fortunate that I do what I love. I choose this career out of passion, and passion has brought me everywhere. Sea turtles have roamed our oceans for over 100 million years. But there is something you should know. They're dying at alarming rates, slaughtered and sold on the black market. Their homes destroyed, polluted, and littered with discarded and deadly fishing gear. Their future depends on you. WWF is working to stop illegal wildlife trade preserve their habitats, and promote safer fishing practices. To support WWF's global efforts to protect them and other endangered species and their habitats, call us or go online to wwfnow.org. For just $8 a month, you can receive this sea turtle adoption kit, which includes our exclusive wall calendar as thanks. Sea turtle lives are at stake. Please help us save them now. Welcome back to First Move. The dot-com bubble, the financial crisis, global recession, just a few of the tests that investors and the markets have faced in recent years. And one man navigated it all at the helm of the Nasdaq, and he's Bob Greifeld. And he's now written a book about his exploits. It's called Market Movers, Lessons from a Decade of Change at the Nasdaq. And uh, Bob joins us now. Fantastic to have you with us, sir. Great book, too. I, I really enjoyed it. My favorite chapter, I have to say, was institutionalizing innovation and I just want you to talk about that to begin the way you went about it your background as well as a tech entrepreneur and what you brought to the Nasdaq so I would say this we focus on being a lean mean operating machine and in that context it's really very difficult to have the iPad develop so what we did is we basically set up a venture capital concept within Nasdaq itself and the deal was that if you came to this council and got your new business uh, approved, that did not count against your budget. 
So it was a certain way, a free lunch. You gave up sovereignty over the decision of whether you get the funding, but as a result of that, you got to then invest in the business. And that changed the company uh, in some fundamental ways. It doesn't happen instantaneously. It was interesting in the beginning, we had a very difficult time getting new concepts to come forward, but as the pump got primed, we saw more and more good business concepts come forward. There's an amazing amount of IQ points within an organization, a lot of market knowledge, you got to use that. I mean, you had to change the mindset completely because if you'd run this the way that you approach the rest of the business with a degree of prudency, I think, to your point, you would have never achieved the advances, the changes, the technological shift that you needed to achieve at the NASDAQ without it. Exactly. And you also have to be comfortable with failure. I said, with respect to what we're trying to do, we're not going to have the percentage of an NBA player shooting free throws. But we should be a top-tier Major League Baseball player, 3 out of 10. That means 7 out of 10 uh, endeavors, you're prepared to say, okay, that did not work. So you have to have a culture willing to accept that, and obviously that starts at the top. Fast forward to today, and we're asking questions, I think, about the venture capital model, the, the mismatch, perhaps, that's appearing now in, in valuations between what we see in private markets and what we see for companies trying, at least, to come to go public, never mind already being public. We right. work as an example, and you've suggested there are perhaps similarities to what you saw during the dot-com boom bust era. Can you just talk us through what you're seeing perhaps here? Yeah, I, I would say this. One is I think WeWorks is an outlier, right? So they have their own somewhat unique set of circumstances. But I think what you could say today with great deal of confidence is that if you're trying to come public, you better have a clear path to profitability. If you do not have that, I think it's going to be a very difficult endeavor. The public markets can be quite understanding and quite long-term in thinking. When you think about the biotech companies that come to market, they typically have to wait a decade before they go profit, uh, go profitable. But people know there's a clear path there. So you have to have that clear path. Even in the worst of times, right, the worst of times, if you are growing and you're profitable, the IPO window is open. Have we spotted this early enough, do you think, to avoid the, the boom bust that we saw back then with the dot-com bubble? And I appreciate that the situation here is very different, but there are a lot of people looking at valuations, looking at the impact of a vision fund, of course, of SoftBank's vision fund and the sheer quantity of money that, that's being put to work right. by them here and going, you know, do we have a bigger problem here? Are we seeing the beginnings of a bigger problem? Agree or disagree? I, I think I uh, disagree, but, you know, with some caveats. Ob obviously, when there's a lot of supply uh, of money coming in, it will tend to inflate valuations. And then people will tend to move away from basic analysis of what is the market opportunity, what's your expected market share, what's your profitability. You start walking away from those analysis and get into competitive bidding wars for assets, then bad things will happen. So certainly in different points in time, you see different uh, inflation of what assets are worth. Uh, are worth. And so we might have been through that. Certainly we have a couple examples where you can argue that. But by and large, what we've seen is public markets providing rationality to valuations, and they do that better than private markets. Right? Par private markets have a greater propensity to get the valuation numbers wrong than a public market would.
Yeah, and that's a problem when companies are staying private for uh, longer and longer and longer. Yeah. I want to sum up the book because throughout the book, you, you litter, you drop pearls of wisdom on what great leadership looks like. Honesty, transparency, um, having debate. What's your best advice for budding entrepreneurs today and also for, for leaders of businesses today that are, are looking for ways to, to be better and to build stronger teams? Okay, so two things. One, uh, with respect to the company, right, you always have to be in lockstep with the customer. You have to understand exactly what the customer is thinking. But I also say that the customer will give you the incremental uh, value to your product, and that you have to just basically take directly from them. If you want to make the big leap forward, you really don't get that uh, directly from the customer. And I love the old line saying, if I had listened to my customers, Henry Ford, I would have built a faster horse. So you have to then synthesize all your knowledge and say, okay, this is the leap forward. You have to do that. With respect to teams, I talk about you have to get the right people on the bus. It's always about having the best team you can possibly develop. Uh, I certainly have always believed in a one, three, five-year strategic plan, but I knew by definition they were wrong dead wrong, right? So the team on the bus had to be able to do course corrections and understand, okay, the set of circumstances changed, we had this plan, it's wrong, what do we do now? So you have to have the right the team on the field, you have to have the best group of athletes, you don't know exactly what skill set they're going to need, uh, that's why they have to be overall uh, you know, athletic in terms of what they can do and kind of basically respond to what the external environment is giving to you. Yeah, be flexible. Lots of sporting analogies there. We like yes. it. Bob, fantastic to have you on. We'll get you back. Hopefully at the Stock Exchange as well, if the uh, politics allows it. <laughs> <laughs> Bob Greifeld, naughty, the former Nasdaq CEO and Virtue Financial Chairman. Great to have you with us, sir. Thank Good you. Good to see you, Julia. All right, so let's take a break. Up next, though, Apple backs down as it becomes the latest business to feel Beijing's muscle over Hong Kong's protests. Stay with us. All the details next. first move and a look at today's boardroom brief. Fidelity has become the latest broker to cut commissions for online trading to zero. Last week, rival Charles Schwab stunned the industry when it announced that it would no longer charge fees for trading U.S. stocks online. Its main competitors scrambled to follow suit, sending share prices in the big brokers sharply lower. The company behind video game Fortnite says players are free to speak out in support of Hong Kong protesters during online streams. The CEO of Epic Games is speaking out after Activision Blizzard banned an esports player for his support of the pro-democracy movement during a live stream event. Epic is 40% owned by China's Tencent. Alibaba CEO Jack Ma remains the richest person in China with a net worth of $39 billion. Second place goes to Pony Ma, the founder and CEO of Tencent. Tech billionaires continue to top the report's China's rich list. Pharmaceutical entrepreneurs now make up 8% of the list. Chinese food service moguls saw their wealth soar too as pork prices surge. Good for the billionaires, not so good, of course, for the people. Apple, you mentioned this story earlier. Apple has removed from its store a Hong Kong app used by protesters to track police. The decision comes a day after Chinese state media accused Apple of opening the door, quote, to violent protesters by allowing the app. Hadas Gold joins us on this story. Hadas, the app company saying this is purely a political move by Apple. What do we make of this? 
Yeah, Julia, this app called HKMap.Live, it used input from people on the ground saying where there was police activity. Now, HKMap is put out a series of tweets calling the move political decisions, said it doesn't endanger police, that their moderators take down any sort of input that might encourage criminal activity. But Apple says that they removed it uh, because it's being used in a way, as they say, to hurt law enforcement. They say that they got complaints from customers in Hong Kong, although notable that it, the takedown came after this app was heavily criticized in the official Communist Party newspaper. But in a statement, Apple says that they verified with Hong Kong authorities that the app has been used to target and ambush police, threaten public safety, and criminals have used it to victimize residents in areas where they know there is no law enforcement. This app violates our guidelines and local laws, and we have removed it from the app store. Of course, this is putting Apple along with a long list of companies that have come under pressure in China, as you noted in that introduction. And there has been a lot of activity online of people criticizing Apple for what they say is bowing to Chinese pressure. But China is a very important customer for Apple. It's a bright spot in areas where other sales might have lagged. Just to give you an, an idea of how important China is to Apple, in their third quarter earnings call, China was mentioned 22 times. Julia? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I'm not sure any other government around the world would act differently when we're talking about violent protests, but um, an interesting one for Apple. That's it for the show, though. You've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.